Hey guys, this is Ishai Breslauer and welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show where we discuss commercial real estate. On Mondays, we dive deep into an asset class and on Thursdays, we go into some inspirational stories for the weekend. Can't wait to start. Let's go. Hey guys, before we continue, I would like to introduce you to the seven day CRE challenge, which will introduce you to commercial real estate and will show you that anyone can do this. Also, I have the free cheat sheet for commercial real estate with the six best secrets for commercial real estate. You can download it free. Just click below or above wherever it is and get it. Let's continue. Hi guys, this is Shai Breslauer, the CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you guys are doing fine this beautiful Monday morning. Okay, and uh, today we have an exciting show. Today we have really an exciting show. We have Michael Mintz. He's a CEO uh, of uh, a management property management company that does a bunch of stuff, whether it's ownership, management level, and uh, we're going to talk about this a lot, a lot more. So let me, without further ado, let me bring him in and let's start this exciting thing. And you guys can listen to us as either you drive Later on, by the way, this is going to be a part of the podcast. As you know, we are live on LinkedIn. We're live on YouTube. We are live on the Facebook page. So go and like and share and do whatever you need to do. Subscribe. You know, do whatever you guys need to do. So let's go. Let's, without further ado, Michael Mintz, how are you? It's good to see you again. Such a distant world. And now we have the chance to talk. So that is really amazing. Michael Mitz is CEO and founder of MD Squared. You can see it also in his title. And uh, uh, Michael, you know what? Tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself and uh, and who you are. And th- thank you for being on the show, by the way. Perfect. Good morning, Ishai. And thank you so much for having me this morning. I appreciate it. Um, or for you, I guess, afternoon, for me, morning. Um, exactly. It. Um, so Michael Mintz, I'm the founder and CEO of MD Squared Property Group, as you said, mentioned, um, we are a Manhattan based property management firm. Um, we do third party property management, manage about 3,500 units, um, in the New York area. Primarily, we do also have offices in New Haven, Connecticut and Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, those are some markets that we've been both from an investor perspective and from a, um, management, third party management perspective been, um, been growing in and been been investing in um, both time and and money. Um, we do, as you should mentioned, we do do both third party management where we'll manage multifamily properties for other investors, and then we also um, buy and syndicate deals ourselves. So we put together deals and um, give the opportunity to bring other investors into our deals. Um, we have done things, and in terms of the management, also we go all the way from affordable um, Class C properties up to um, up to high-end residential properties in Manhattan. Um, so we kind of run the full gamut of different types of properties. Um, from an investment perspective these days, I will say we've been focusing more on the Class C properties just because um, we find it to be a little bit more stable, especially given the current economy during COVID. Um, but um, in general, we have focused on a broad range of properties to invest in. We okay, also Michael. At- Yeah, go ahead. There's one more thing, Isha, as Isha, I think, knows, we also do do some prop tech investing. Um, so we do invest in prop tech companies, um, both through um, through partners in a fund structure and then also directly. Um, we also do advise multiple prop tech companies and sit on their boards as advisors um, to help them both grow in different markets, to help them um, figure out how to refine their project products and adjust their products to meet the market demands. Um, and generally, we try to stay um, far ahead of the curve and far ahead of the market in terms of the prop tech that we bring to our buildings. So, Michael, thank you. And uh, we have, to say the least, we have a lot to talk about, you know, that's yep. uh, to say the least. So let's start from the very beginning. How did you start? Meaning, how can I ask how old you are? Because if it's, if it's a woman, it's a girl. I never do that. <laughs> if it's a guy, you know, I, I tend to ask, you know, how old are you? No, that's fair. That's fair. So I'm 36 years old. Um, was actually born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, and still love Minnesota, great state, great city. Um, but I went to college at the University of Maryland, um, and then afterwards made my way up to New York. I actually started after college, I studied computer engineering and economics, um, and I ended up getting an internship with a real estate firm that 
built affordable housing in Northeast DC. Um, and when I did that, I just really enjoyed the construction side. I really enjoyed um, just every day going to a construction site and overseeing the contractors and um, picking finishes and and then the process from then, um, getting units either sold or leased up. Um, it, it was just enjoying, it was very, it was relatively quick to see the results of your labor um, and felt satisfying and I, I really liked it. So. I ended up graduating um, without finishing my computer engineering degree, just with economics um, and going into um, a construction superintendent role where I was on a construction site every day. Um, where was that, by the way? That was in D.C. for the same company I yeah. interned with, Mankiti Group, they're called. Um, my boss at the time was this guy, Bo Mankiti, um, amazing boss. He runs an amazing company. They're still doing very well in Northeast D.C. Um, and that was in late 07. Um, so basically I stayed there for almost a year. What basically had happened was, and as I'm sure many of us remember in late 07, the market had really started to turn. Um, we were wrapping up some projects, but really there wasn't new funding coming in for new projects. So at the yeah. time, um, we shifted our focus from the condo deals that we were doing at the time we were building a lot of condos that we were trying to sell. We shifted our focus from condo deals to shift everything back to rentals because it did not look like there would be much of a market to sell these units. Um, and when everything shifted back to rentals, my role switched from construction superintendent to being a property manager. So the buildings that I was a superintendent on, once we completed them and punched them out and everything, um, we then rented out the units. And at that point it was about finding tenants, dealing with tenant concerns, making sure, that the tenant had the best experience possible in the units. Um, stayed there for a couple of months, but that, at that point decided if I was not going to be actively working on a construction site, which is what I really wanted to do at the time, um, I had an opportunity in New York to go into property management, came up to New York for a company at the time, Cooper Square Realty, it was called. It, it ended up kind of turning into first service residential, um, which is actually the largest property management firm now in New York. Um, worked there, worked um, directly at a certain point with David Cooperberg, who was the CEO over there um, on his portfolio and a couple of other portfolios. Um, and then in 2014, decided um, it was time to go off and do my own thing. I had learned quite a bit over there um, and was just tired of working, working in this big corporate environment um, and felt that if I left and started my own, my own firm, I'd be able to manage the way I wanted to manage. Tell me something before we go to the story of how you started, you know, your own firm. I want to ask you like a question that is, is a very interesting question. I, I'm sure the answer is going to be even more interesting. You were, you started to mention that you were, you had this learning experience within 2007, right? Right before the market crash. What did you learn from the property management aspect from doing it day to day? What did you learn from that? So there's actually a lot that I have learned from day-to-day -day property management. Obviously you're in the weeds, right? So sometimes you get too caught up on small nuances, right? So for example, um, oftentimes on the buildings that we own and manage now, when I look over plumbing bills or I look over electrician bills or things like that, I will get really into the details of they're charging us, first of all, what's the rate, right? Does this rate make sense? Are they charging us too much? Did they actually do all this work? Are they trying to kind of buffer this bill to make a little bit more? Um, and oftentimes on the buildings that we manage, I'll tell the manager, hey, I want you to go back and argue on this. And it will be for 500 bucks or whatever it is. It's not big numbers in the big scheme of things. But in the end of the day, um, I think my experience as a property manager makes me just pay attention to those details. Um, we call it the devil is in the details, we call it. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And they add up over time. Um, but, but what I will say, I, I definitely learned from an operating perspective, understand the mechanicals really well of a building. Um, so in terms of the, the boilers, the coolers, the cooling towers, excuse me, um, the general mechanicals, how roofs work, um, how facades are supposed to work, how window systems work, um, just understanding the, the physics and the, the fundamentals of those things has, I'd say, been extremely helpful, especially when we're purchasing new properties um, or advising. Right. Over right. From a maintenance perspective, yeah. That's right. Also, New York City specifically, and I will say in other markets, this has not come into play as much just because they're not as nuanced. But New York City really has a unique system in terms of their rent stabilization. Um, so obviously rent regulation in a lot of different cities now, they've been passing right. rent regulation laws. Um, I'd say most cities that we've seen at least are much more streamlined in terms of those laws. New York City is very, very nuanced in terms of how those laws work, in terms of how the process works. Um, 
And one thing that I'd say that I've become very proficient in and, and trained a lot of people in my office now in is understanding the laws, understanding what your risk exposure is based off of potential open complaints, open rent reduction orders, open harassment complaints, um, things like that. So that's something that I think has been extremely useful to me and extremely valuable as I've kind of grown in my career and grown in my different opportunities, just really understanding the, the, the specific nuances of rent stabilization. Amazing. Tell me something. When you started your own company, how did that happen? Tell me a little bit about it. Tell us what how went out in your head and what went out in the field, as we call it. So, so in my head, I was tired of working for someone else. I obviously was seeing their numbers, so I knew how much they were making off of my work. Um, and I knew how hard I was working to do that. Um, and I knew that they were making pretty good profit margins off of the How old work. were you at the time? At the time, I was 29. Um, so... That also was part of it. I was about to turn, I was what, about six months from turning 30 at the time when I decided I was going to go off on my own um, and decided, do I really want to be working for someone else forever? Probably not. I want my freedom. I want control of my own destiny. So this was the best time to go and do this. Um, so I, I, I made the decision that I wanted to leave, um, wanted to start my own firm, gave notice, um, did not have any clients at the time. I also was, I, I would say, I was not sure whether I, wanted to focus on buying properties or just doing management. I ended up falling into more of the management at first than the investment. It actually wasn't until late 15 that I started buying some properties. Um, so it was over a year after I started the management firm um, before I started buying some properties. Um, but for me, it was just about having control over my own destiny and, and, and kind of that freedom to define what I was doing all day. While I was at first service, for example, it was just much harder if I wanted to, for example, look at properties to potentially purchase. My days were owned by them, right? I didn't have the opportunity to really take that time and go in and, and allocate it how I wanted to. Um, so I... Decided to leave on my own. Like I said, I was not sure whether I wanted to buy or start management or a management company because I knew the management better. I just kind of fell into that management role. We started taking on some management clients. Um, how hard was it to get new clients? The first, about the first two clients, how hard was that? And so I actually had to do in order to do it with my first. Because a lot of people who are listening to us, some of them are are pros like you and myself, and uh, and uh, and even further than that, and some of them are beginners and want to understand how they. Are going to see their future. Yeah. So, so look, so much in life is about relationships, right? So even when I was at first service, I had good, good relationships with people. Um, had relationships with people that were buying buildings, some of the buildings I was managing while I was at first service and kept those relationships up. Um, went to a ton of networking events and just kind of met people and had good relationships. Um, and so my first two were, were I would say, relatively easy. Um, we actually, two people who ended up really just being amazing clients, um, but they both had immediate needs. They were both purchasing properties. I knew them through different contexts. Um, what the size of properties they had? What was that? What are the sizes, the property oh, so, size? So one was a 45-unit building um, on the Upper East Side. The other one was a 12-unit building on the Upper East Side. Um, so relatively small buildings, um, but in the end of the day, they gave me my start. They were great references. They just were good people to work with. Um, and look, just being very frank, when you're starting a business, right, you're also figuring a lot of stuff out. Like we all think we know what we do. And then once you leave, you realize, wait, there's so many other people that had their hands in this whole process that I didn't know probably 50, 60 percent of what was happening with management. Right. Um, so once you leave, you start figuring out, okay, this is kind of the nuances of how we have to have our accounting systems run. This is the nuances of how we kind of are going to manage work order tickets. Um, you start figuring this stuff out as you go. Um, and it was just, I would say very eye opening to me when I was at first service, I always thought that my bosses and the people ahead of me, um, obviously knew everything they were doing. They knew exactly kind of what they should be doing. They knew how to run the processes. They knew how to how to make everything run well. Um, and I just figured they just know it. Um, and very quickly after I left, and especially after having conversations with my old bosses after I left, I realized that every day you go in and you have new challenges where you don't necessarily know the answers. And you have to research it. You have to figure out things. You have to find the answers. Um, and then you have to also always be open to realize maybe you didn't find the best answer, right? So you might have put a solution in place or a process in place. But if you find something better, change it, right? Always improve. Um, but that was just, I, I would say, very humbling and very eye-opening to me to realize that 
many people in leadership positions do not actually know what they're doing. They're figuring it out on a day-by-day basis. Um, and so at this point, I'd say we have a, a, a really good operation. Um, but in the early days, we were figuring things out day by day. Um, we There were so many things that we realized we did not know. Um, and we would find solutions to them and, and find answers and ask for advice from people. Um, but it's humbling. Also, even when we left at first service, my smallest building was 150 units. Um, obviously, like I said, I took on a 12 unit and a 45 unit building after I left. Um, and I'll say those were actually relatively large buildings. For the first probably two years, many of the buildings we were taking on were five or 10 units. Um, so we really started taking on much smaller buildings until we built on that, up that reputation that larger buildings would start having conversations with us. Listen, it sounds exciting. And the, I would say every beginning has its own challenges. That's how it works. That's how it works. Tell me something. When was the point of scale? When was the point where you said, okay, I have the small buildings, it's me and probably another person and whatever. When was the point when you took the business to another level? When was that? So that's actually a great question. It's funny that you're asking these questions. Actually, yesterday, someone was talking with me about this and I was kind of reliving some of these memories. And, and the truth is, one thing that I would say, no matter what you want to do, what type of business you want to open, take risks. Risks are, are, are part of the experience and they're part of what creates success. Um, but I remember very clearly this um, assistant manager that we were hiring um, was our first employee that we hired. And I would say that was a, at least in my mind, a pivotal moment in terms of being able to, and I use the term scale. Um, I, I will say, and you say, I know we've spoken about this in the past. I don't really think, at least right now, the property management is built to scale. Um, it's still a very labor intensive business. It's not as AI and software driven as it probably should be, and it will likely be right. over the next 10 right. years. Right, we spoke about this. Exactly. So I think I think over the next 10 years that may change and it will become more of a scalable business. I actually don't really believe property management is very scalable right now um, just because it's it's one property manager at a time, right? One one financial analyst at a time that you're hiring to grow your team. It can't just be scaled quickly. Um, you've got to find the right talent. But hiring our first employee was a pivotal moment where it just changed my outlook on the business. Um, originally, it was me and one partner. Um, and then after we hired that first employee, it all of a sudden seemed like, okay, now we could really start growing this. Um, also just thinking back on it. So 2014, we opened. So six years ago, um, it was September of 2014. Um, so just, just over six years ago at this point. Um, but so at the time we, we first thought, okay, we're hiring an employee. This is crazy. Then about Two, three months later, our lease was coming up and we realized we needed more space. Um, and we were growing. We actually had hired one more employee after that. Um, so at that point, it was four of us working in a small office. Um, and so based off our growth tra trajectory, we were like, okay, let's try to get a larger office and we'll sublet some of the offices. So we ended up getting a 2,500 square foot space. We went from 500 square feet to 2,500 square feet. I figured this will give us room for growth. We'll sublet out some of the space. But this was tremendous. Like when we moved into this new office, I, I remember it so clearly just thinking this was the biggest space ever. Like we're never going to fill this. We're going to be subletting <laughs> to other people forever. Um, and funny enough, about two years, a little less than two years later, we had that space packed. Um, no space for anyone. Um, so we actually took another 2,500 square foot space in the same building to expand into. Um, but it's just, it, it's, you know, obviously at this point, it's good memories, but each of those things were risks that I took and things that truthfully caused anxiety at the time, caused me to be nervous about would we be able to afford this? Would this be successful? Um, but it it worked out well. And the truth is- you Pivotal put in, moments, as we call them. That's right. That's right. And in my mind, I, I remember we call them very clearly because um, they were decisions that we made that I wasn't sure if I wanted to take that risk. But in the end of the day- um, paid off and allowed us to expand into what we've become now. And obviously there, you know, right now we're going through another similar process where I'm looking to possibly sign a new office lease and double our space. I know right now, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later. Um, everyone's scared about the office market, what's going to happen with it. Um, yeah, we're going to get to that. Yes. Yeah. And so my, my feeling is that, yes, I think prices will be, um, will be somewhat compressed for the next couple of years because demand might not be there. I do think a lot of offices will um, scale back their office use. 
Um, I will tell you our business is a very interactive and, and face-to-face business. It's just very hard to do it over Zoom. Obviously, we've made it work over the past nine months or whatever it is that COVID's Can kind you of- explain this aspect? That's very interesting. Can you explain this? We, we, I have a whole meaning track of kind of meaning of questions basically to go through the, you know, the phases. But if, if you could explain this, what do you mean when you say um, our business is so face-to-face type of business, not a type of type of business, and we we can rely on some hundred percent? What do you mean yeah. by that? So, so what I mean by that is, so so the property management business, like I said, is very labor-based, right? Obviously, we do have tools that we use to track action items and to track open open things that need to be done and 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 work tickets and things like that that we use in the background. But it's still a very labor based business. And anytime that you have people involved, when when so heavily people involved and multiple people, right? Because you have on any given property that we manage, right? We'll have the property manager, the assistant property manager, the financial analyst, the AP clerk, the AR clerk, right? Some admins. So you have multiple people who have their hands in different parts of it, our compliance manager all these people. And so obviously you want to create as automated of a system as possible. And that's the, that's for us, our hope, right? That through, through work tickets, through an action action lists that are collaborative and shared with people, everyone has full transparency into what everyone else is working on. What are the open items, what needs to be done? Unfortunately, in reality, when you have people involved, it just doesn't work that great. Right. Um, at least we've found no matter how hard you try to implement these systems, there's things that get lost because people still keep a lot of stuff in their mind. Um, and so what we've found is in the office environment, in a collaborative office environment, when everyone's sitting by each other, they're grabbing lunch by each other, they're grabbing coffee next to each other, they're, you know, standing at the water cooler. Those are the moments when people will be like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, but there's this rebate program that I wanted to talk to you about for your building because your building probably would qualify for this rebate program that you might want to consider doing some lighting upgrades in your building for, right? And it's not the type of thing that necessarily you can- Right, people will be reminded on Zoom to talk about it exactly. That's You're right. right. That's yeah. right. So we've found that, that there's been, been a big breakdown on that aspect of just talking about those day-to-day things that end up coming up and end up allowing you to be much more proactive in terms of bringing values to your building. Um, and so we've found that unfortunately, a lot of that has deteriorated over COVID. Um, we're obviously trying in different ways to remind people we have, for example, we used to not do this, but now we have a lot more lunch and learns that we do where we bring vendors in and twice a week, um, vendors come in and talk about different programs or different kind of maintenance protocols that should be in place and this and that to try to educate people, get the conversation going more, but it's not as effective as um, it's not as effective as being in the office. So like one thing that I've been speaking to people about, there are certain jobs that I think, you know, you're sitting in front of a computer modeling all day, or you're sitting in front of a computer, um, you know, preparing financial statements or this or that, that might not be as collaborative. And even for us, like we've found, for example, our accounting team can work much more efficiently from home, um, than our management team. And then our compliance. Some teams are like this. Some teams are like that. Right. Very interesting right. perspective. So we've we've found that not being in the office has been a challenge. We are excited to hopefully get back to the office fully soon. We are partially open right now um, with kind of limited capacity in the office, but we are excited for soon everyone to be back. Um, but I, I think to the point of our accounting team, for example, working relatively efficiently remotely, um, I think that's where we could potentially save something on, on office space. But my feeling overall is that, and I do think obviously there are a decent number of firms that probably do not need that collaboration as much and can save a lot of money by having people work from home um, in, in different sectors. But my feeling right now is we're looking for new office space because our release is up in October of this year is I think the market's suppressed right now. I think that it will take a period of time for it to, for, for that supply to be, to be absorbed. Um, but I think you're talking about probably a couple of years. Um, so my my philosophy right now is we're out in the market. We're looking for a 10-year lease. Um, I'm taking substantially more than double our current footprint, um, nearly triple actually our current footprint, because I could get it for half of what we're currently paying in the current environment. Um, so you may get it. You may get a good deal, as we say. This is the time to do it. That's exactly right. So my feeling once again is if I can lock in a, a 10-year deal at these good terms, I believe strongly in 10 years, the office market will be far surpassing where we were even before the pandemic. Um, so if I can lock in the rates right now, it will give me the opportunity to, if I need to sublet space, 
Um, but if not, grow into space at a far lower rent than, for example, if I need to take more space in five years, then I'd be paying for a lease. Um, so that's the risk that I'm willing to take. Obviously, it is a risk. It's possible the market will stay compressed for an extended period of time going forward. Um, but my belief is that it will come back. I think people are are somewhat tired of working from home, and I think people truthfully forget, and people are going to forget the pandemic. Companies are going to forget the pandemic, and they're going to move forward and kind of go back to business as usual within a few years. Let's hope, let's hope you're right. Let's hope you're right, and I actually do agree. I, I say it will take time, but I believe everything will bounce back. Here's what I want to ask you. Before we go into some more practical market questions, the last question I want to ask you is about um, when you moved from management to start owning, to ownership, yep. being a holding company. How did that happen? What was the decision? What was what were how did you see that coming? And what were the challenges? Finding investors, doing things, sourcing deals, doing take, taking things on your own. Which markets you went on first, and why? Yeah, so so that's a very good question. Um, like I had mentioned, from the beginning, I had this idea that I wanted to buy properties. It was about finding the right opportunities. Um, New York City specifically, where obviously we're based out of and where we started, um, I, I would say in 14 when I started my business, and it, it, it's funny because you look back and obviously I was completely wrong on this, um, but when I was looking at deals, I I thought relative to kind of where prices were when I was starting the business in New York, I thought prices were so overinflated. I was like, how does it make sense that prices could keep going up? Um, so I was very selective on my deals. Um, and finally, in late 15, found a deal that I thought was priced well. Um, so we transacted on that one. Um, funny enough, I put down the deposit on that. When I found the deal, we underwrote it. I thought it was a good deal. Put down the deposit. Um, had a investor for about half of the capital equity that we needed. Um, wasn't sure what I was going to do with the other half. And I was panicking. We had less than 30 days to close. Um, this was my first deal. I didn't know what to do. And the truth is, I'd say on subsequent deals, things like this have happened again. But I just realized, like, if it's a good deal, I'll find people. Um, happened to meet at a law firm's holiday party. Um, this person who ended up being an investor of mine in multiple deals was telling about the deal. He's like, that's really interesting. Can you send me the model tomorrow? This was less than 30 days from when we were supposed to close on it. Um, sent him the model. We started speaking within about a week. He said, okay, I'll take the other half. Um, and kind of that ended up raising my capital to close on that deal. Um, but for me, it was really about finding the right deal. And even right now, obviously, and, and this is a relative, I like, guess, statement because the right deal given the market and given kind of all the other deals you're seeing can all vary somewhat. But um, I, even right now, I struggle to find good deals. I would say I'm much more selective than most, than most of the syndication firms out there. Our lights are not kept on through fees from the syndication. Our lights are kept on through the management business. Um, so I don't need to be constantly doing deals to keep my employees employed, right? I have another side of the business that keeps my employees employed. This indication right. is kind of the gravy on top. Um, so for me, I, I am very selective of the deals that I pick. Um, I want to make sure that they make sense. Um, and if they really make good sense to me, then I'm willing to execute on them. Um, cool. Maybe that will change over time. Obviously, let's see as that keeps growing. But I think for me, at least right now, um, we tend to be very selective of our deals. And it was about finding the right deal in 2015 and then ultimately putting all the pieces together to find the right people and close on it. Listen, sounds exciting. And now I want to really shift. I want to shift to where we are, not right now, but pre-COVID. What's happening pre-COVID with your company? How do you see the market? And, uh, and tell us, let's say COVID is not hitting yet. We are now at uh, 2019. Everything is great. Everything is awesome. Tell us about your activity, about your perspective in terms of the management, in terms of the ownership, in terms of the three markets that you are actually in, okay, and the differences between them. And uh, uh, let's talk about that first, and then we'll go and shift at what happened to COVID. But first, let's talk about that. Okay. So, so, so a couple of things. So one is pre-COVID on the management side, and this is for years, I've had this kind of thought that I'd like to find a way to really grow the management business and possibly roll up other companies on the, in the management space. Um, just because as we spoke about before, I think management right now is very labor intensive and not built in a way that is scalable. I think that can be changed. I think through the right platforms, through the right software, 
um, and technology that can be changed. And I think if you turn management into a scalable business, the multiples of EBITDA that management companies are selling for will 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 increase tremendously. So I think there's a lot of money to be made potentially through a roll up in the management business if you can can uh, implement the correct te technology to ultimately work with a management company. So I've been working on that, working with some capital partners um, to look for some other companies that we could potentially partner with and roll up together, um, and then also bring the technology in. So that's kind of one side of it. And pre-COVID, that was kind of my belief. And post-COVID or, or, or during COVID, um, truthfully, that, that has not really changed much. So still work with those capital partners. We're in talks with some other firms and, and kind of looking to see what we can do to try to roll up a couple of companies so that we will have the resources to build the right technology platform. Tell um, me something about, meaning you are in Manhattan, you're in Tulsa, right? Yep. And you're in New Haven. Tell us a little bit about the differences between the places and how you function in terms of your business. Okay, definitely. So, well, so, sorry, just stepping back, and 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 if I'm talking too much, you should let me know, and I'll, I'll, I'll no, no, it's all good. It's interesting stuff. Keep on going. I'll stop you if I need. So, to your question from before, so the management business was one business pre-COVID. The other business was the syndication. So, um, stepping back even a little bit further pre-COVID. Um, the New York market we had been in since, like I said, 2015, we closed on our first deal in the New York market. Our general business model was we would buy buildings um, if there was a possibility to renovate units, work with tenants to relocate them, things like that, um, to ultimately try to improve the building, increase rents. Um, and that was kind of the value add play that we would implement to ultimately um, get a good return on our money. Um, in June of 2019, there was some substantial legislation that passed in New York um, that affected rent stabilization. I will say that's right. Very huge. And everyone's obviously now talking about COVID June of 2019 is what changed that market. Right. So everybody when, was talking about that. Then that was what everybody was talking about. That's right. And, and that, that truthfully had more of an impact than COVID. Obviously COVID is having an impact on the market. It's, it's impacting cash flows and things like that. But I will say the laws that the, that the state assembly and state senate passed affecting rent stabilization had a bigger impact on value, a bigger impact on outside investors looking to come into New York, and a bigger impact on the market than COVID could ever have. Which, which is a little scary that the the legislative impact that can be had, and the fact that these legislators were able to just change the rules of the game um, so drastically, where literally overnight many buildings lost thirty to forty percent of their value. Um, so we've kind of lost track of that. The legislators obviously are are trying to, at this point, focus everything on COVID, that this is all COVID related. Um, the truth is a lot of this was political decisions that led to um, some of the turmoil we have in the market right now. But either way, when, when we saw that coming, um, which I would say was early 2019, that's when there started being talk of these changes. Um, when we saw that coming, that's when we decided, okay, we have to really diversify our portfolio. Um, so we started looking more out of state. We found Tulsa, Oklahoma specifically as a market that we were really interested in. Um, Why? So, so, so multiple reasons, I would say. But Tulsa has been an evolving market from a jobs perspective for quite some time. It had been um, traditionally a very oil and natural gas heavy um, state where I, I'd say in the past, the vast majority of jobs were oil and natural gas. Over the past 10 years, they've really made a strong effort to move away from that, try to bring more tech jobs in, more manufacturing jobs, and create more diversity diversity in the employment market there. Um, so one is we thought that was a good thing, right? They're, they're moving in the right direction in terms of employment diversity, um, which our feeling is will help kind of continue to grow that market. Two is they've had a lot of money pumped into that market through nonprofits and other agencies to try to build up their downtown, build up the young population. They actually had a really innovative program where they would give to any young entrepreneur who wanted to um, start their business, whether they have employees or not, but was willing to start their business in Tulsa, they would give them a $10,000 grant, um, which obviously if you're starting a business, especially in a city like Tulsa, where your cost of living is not huge, $10,000 could go pretty far to help you carry yourself for a couple of months while you're kind of starting up this business. Um, so we thought that was an innovative program. That was really interesting. It's a red state. Um, so from a political perspective, obviously this political risk in New York was what was scaring us. Um, we wanted to go to something that would not have that same political risk, right? That we knew would be more stable from a business perspective. So we were looking for a red state. So Oklahoma 
one of the most red states in the country. Um, and then thirdly, we wanted something that would not have heavy competition. So we looked specifically for a place that did not have direct flights from New York. Um, and Oklahoma does not have, Tulsa at least, does not have any direct flights from New York. Oklahoma City has had one direct flight a day. Obviously, COVID's changed that, but it had one direct flight a day. Um, Tulsa has had no direct flights from New York ever. Um, there actually was one that was supposed to be starting in March that was canceled due to COVID. Um, but we wanted something that would be hard to get to because less competition, um, which means generally you could buy things at higher cap rates. We figured that would change over time. But if we get in before everyone else, it would be a good market to be in and own some stuff in. Um, once we started investigating the market going there, we found the city was extremely, I would say, extremely supportive. I wouldn't say like, I, I think they're, their mindset is relatively progressive, um, but they are extremely supportive of businesses um, and they were willing to give us the resources and the help that we needed to figure out how to make sense of deals there. Um, so we really enjoyed the city. The Jewish community actually happens to be, as an aside, an amazing community there. It's small, but the people are amazing. The first time we went there, they reached out to see if they could help us with anything. Um, and they've been amazing, a great resource to find vendors and other things. Um, so overall, we just felt it was a good opportunity. And so far, we've, we've really appreciated and enjoyed that market. Um, in terms of your question about operating in different markets, so obviously in New York, we have a really big footprint, right? So New York, we have about, at this point, I guess, once again, relative term, but we have about 45 people in our New York office. So for me, that's a, a good size footprint where it just kind of things run. Um, I don't need to be, obviously, from a big picture, from a, a, a kind of strategic perspective, I'm very involved. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't necessarily need to be as involved in the New York office because there's a lot of people that are doing what they have to do to make sure things are running forward. Um, in the Tulsa market, we have a much smaller team. Um, so there, I do have to be more involved. I spend a week a month there in general um, with the team out there, just working on making sure we get the right processes and procedures in place and are moving things in the right direction. Um, but being remote is definitely hard. Um, and once again, with COVID, we've seen being remote anywhere is hard. Um, but being this remote where I can't, if I have to go and head to a property or head to the office, I've got to jump on a flight. So it's just a lot harder. Um, has definitely been a challenge, but we have been learning to overcome it, come it. We've been finding the right talent who kind of can step in and, and really give us the support that we need on site there. Um, and overall, I would say it's been a really good experience. Tell me something. New Haven, Connecticut. You said you're there. Yeah. We both know this market pretty well. Tell me something. Uh, how is that? Where do you go into? What type of properties? What type of assets? Um, is it Yale-focused uh, or not? Yeah, so, so in New Haven, we specifically have been buying properties that are, that are surrounding Yale. Um, and so student housing, obviously, the big market in New Haven, whether it's Yale, whether it's um, other colleges, there's a bunch of different community colleges and things like that in New Haven. Um, but student housing is a big market there. Um, but we have been specifically focusing on the downtown area near Yale. Um, we are, I would say we are bullish on that market. Um, they're also, this was, I believe, in late 18, they changed their tax structure for multifamily, which most of our stuff has been multifamily. Um, so I will say that kind of softened that market a little bit because um, it definitely made it so that the returns were not quite as good quite as good as before. They also removed some of the tax incentive programs and things like that. Um, but we do still think it's a strong market. Um, it seems that job growth has been really nice over there. Um, in general, has been good. I, I will say the past year or so, there's been some challenges there with a couple companies moving out, but in general, it's been pretty good. Um, and we like that market. We do interestingly have some office, um, one office building and one retail building there. Um, those sectors have been bad even pre-COVID. Pre I will say those have been hard to fill up um, and we'll see what we ultimately do with it. The retail building, we were thinking of doing some sort of food haul in. Um, that has not worked out. We actually had pre-COVID a partner who was interested in it and it seems like that's now fully fallen apart and I don't know if it will work afterwards. Um, but we're looking at different opportunities, trying to see what we can do up there. Um, generally, we like that market, though. It seems to be a growing market, um, both because of Yale and generally in terms of graduates and other people staying around there. The healthcare industry is strong there. Um, obviously, um, Yale, New Haven, hospitals and healthcare is a right. big employer there. So, know, one, 
One thing I want to say about New Haven is that you really have to know your way around there because you have everywhere, but there particularly because you have, you need to know where the Yale area is, you know, where, where they are, and also with the other areas. You have some areas in New Haven that are not so attractive. You have to really right. understand your way around, understand which block is better, which block is not, where are you looking for properties, what type of properties, where the students are going when they're not going. There's the new construction going just like every place, but there it's a unique challenge for that unique, you know, for that area specifically. Yep. Tell me something. What what I want to I want to shift now. Um, I want to I want to have some time to talk about that too. COVID hit. COVID hit. What's happening in your firm? What's happening in your properties? What's happening with the property you manage? Yep. So, thankfully, with COVID, we have not had to let any employees go. Um, our Revenues have stayed relatively stable. We've had slight de decreases in certain revenues. Um, unfortunately, our margins, because we've kept all, our employees on our carrying some people until we could fill their portfolios, our margins have come down a little bit, um, but we're still able to sustain ourselves and stay afloat. Um, but from a, so from a management perspective, we have been hit, but I would say not, not super hard. Um, on the building ownership side, it's definitely been worse. Um, we have some buildings that are really struggling along right now because we have a lot of tenants who aren't paying. Um, I don't know if you've been seeing the news recently. New York has some legislation that's out there right now that is likely to pass in some form, extending this eviction moratorium, which the truth is you have a lot of tenants who are taking advantage of that. You have some tenants that really need it and, and kind of they'll discuss with you what's going on and um, you either come up with payment plans or um, it is what it is. And the truth is, I agree in those situations that you have to work with them, right? Like the, there's not a good alternative. Um, but we have a lot of tenants also who will blatantly say to us, we don't have to pay rent right now. You can't do anything about it. So too bad. Are they, are they, you're talking, you're really talking about uh, uh, residential, right? Residential. That's right. On the residential side. So, so what, what causes it? This is an interesting thing. So what causes these specific, you know, particularly those tenants that come to you with that, uh, what class, what type of assets and what type of tenants are coming in? And in so, terms of the class of the property. In the beginning, we had that across the board, I would say, in all classes. It's now mostly, I would say, more of the rent-stabilized affordable units where we're having people making those comments. Um, but initially, we actually had that across the board where we had people in all types of buildings, high-end, middle-of-the-road, low-income, um, all saying, I don't have to pay. You can't do anything. I'm not going to pay right now. Um, funny enough, and the truth is, this is, I guess a whole nother conversation, what should be done. But we even had one person who came to us who told us that he is a doctor. And he said that um, he's on the front lines of COVID. So how dare us charge him rent? Um, which I, the truth is, and I, I've had multiple conversations with people afterwards. It's an interesting concept. A lot of people have been obviously giving quite generously to first responders and, and, and frontline workers and whatnot. Um, and I know we're all appreciative of everything that they're doing. Um, but at the same time, um, I thought that was a little bit of a out of line comment on his part. Um, and it took a couple of months before he finally agreed to pay his rent. Um, but um, I think it's an, it's open for discussion. And I know I've heard from others that they think that he's right, that um, first responders and frontline workers probably should be given free rent during this period of time. Um, but at the same time, we have buildings to run, right? And so we have to pay mortgages. We have to pay real estate taxes. Where's that money coming from? The government's not paying us that money. No one else is paying us that money. Right. Um, so we have obligations. Um, right. People think that, you know, the rich landlord, that's how it is. The rich landlord, right. they, can, they can do it, you know. That's right. We, that's can, right. We, don't, we don't have to pay the rent. They can handle it. That's right. And, that's uh, right. People are, they're wrong. That's, that's right. not the case that's many right. times. That's right. And so we've, we have, I would say, um, we've eliminated most of that. We do have, like I said, in New York, we still have quite a few tenants. And I would say, to your point, mostly rent stabilized tenants who are coming to us and saying, you can't do anything, we're not gonna pay the rent now, um, which is, I would say, disappointing. Um, I will say in yes. Oklahoma, for example, where most of our properties are class C, um, to the point that I had mentioned to you before, um, we actually across the board tried putting in place the same policy that actually in New York, legally you have to put in place where you can't charge late fees. Um, we across the board told people, look, if you can't afford to pay, we're not going to charge late fees right now. Um, and we put that in place across the board. 
we found in Oklahoma, at least, that was leading to people not paying rent. So we've actually reversed that there and said, unless you speak to us and specifically come up with some sort of payment plan or to some settlement, you will be charged late fees. And now we found that has largely corrected that issue there because there is a downside now to not paying your rent. Um, even if we can't take you to court to evict you, um, you will still accrue late fees and you will have to pay more money in the end of the day because you're choosing not to pay your rent. Crazy. So interesting. What a world. What a world. Yeah. And tell no, me something. The that people like, look, and to your point before about the rich landlord, you're right. The media, the politicians, everyone's kind of putting out this narrative that landlords are all making so much money. So no one should feel bad for them. And at the end of the day, it's a small business like any other small business in this country. And you buy a property with a business plan in place saying, okay, I'm going to buy the property for this dollar amount. This is what I have to put into improvements. This is what I have to put into operating the business, right? And this is what I expect to earn from it. And generally, on most deals these days, right, right, you're not earning that much. What are you earning? 10% of what you invest in tops, right? Relative to other business transactions, that's not huge profit margins. Um, right. So, usually considered, meaning that's why real estate is considered so safe, so stable, right. because rents are coming in. Usually people pay their mortgage. That's what it is. You know, that's what it is. But all of a sudden, here comes COVID and uh, tell us a different story, as we call it. That's right. But and so landlords are not. That's what it is. It's not rich landlords like everyone's giving this narrative about. At the end of the day, most landlords, I'd say, are making worse margins than most other businesses. And so would we ever think, for example, that we should tell everyone you could go into the grocery store, take whatever groceries you want. Oh, but don't worry. We're not going to charge you for them until after COVID, right? That would be a crazy scenario, right? No one would even contemplate doing that. Yeah. So. How then can we, and I think that's very, that's very, a very good analogy to real estate, right? It's an essential need, right? So just like food's an essential need, housing's an essential need. And we would never say that a grocery store owner should just absorb whatever the costs are and just let people take whatever they want from the grocery store and, oh, we can worry about them paying later. So why do we do that with real estate, right? Why has exactly. that become an acceptable way to approach this where we say, okay, the landlord will just absorb it and it's okay. We'll deal with it later. 100%. Tell me something. I want, I want to shift right now a little bit. I want to talk on the same topic actually, but in Manhattan. You're in Manhattan. You also live in Manhattan. What's happening in Manhattan? Yeah. So in everybody's talking about the exodus, you know, from New York city, what is really happening? Yeah, so on the ground, the truth is I have not felt the exodus so much. Obviously I'm not looking, I, I can't, just from walking on the streets, tell you exactly what the population is, but I could tell you it feels as crowded as usual. I'm not taking the subways, so the truth is I'm not feeling the commute in the morning that I used to take. Um, so I don't know how crowded the subways are or things like that, but I will say the streets, the grocery stores feel like they were before COVID. Um, obviously hours are compressed for people to be out um, because restaurants right. are closing early and all that type of stuff. So that might be having some impact on it. Um, but I will say just from the feeling on the street, it does not feel that different to pre-COVID. Um, during the summer, obviously it felt like substantially less people. Everyone was at their vacation homes and whatnot. Um, it seems like now you have most people back in the city is what it's seeming like. Um, now, obviously, from a rental perspective, we are definitely seeing in Manhattan, um, where at this point, historically, we had almost no vacancy in our portfolio. We're now at about 10% vacancy, um, which obviously is having a major impact. Um, and rents also are obviously substantially less. Most of our rents, I'd say, are down about 20% year over year from last year. Um, so obviously, from that perspective, we could tell there's less people in the city um, because people aren't renting things at the same rate. Um, I will say even in the city, though, a lot of people have moved back in with parents, moved back in with family. So I think you just have more people in one apartment to some extent in certain situations. Right. Um, but on the streets, you're not feeling it doesn't feel on the streets like there's substantially less people than there were prior to COVID. What is the feeling? What is the feeling amongst peers? You know, obviously in the streets, one, as you say, you walk in the street, you don't feel it. When you talk to friends, when you talk to family, when you talk to people, what, there's no, there's no talk about people moving out of the city. No, you're not saying that. You're saying but that you hear, you hear it from some people, and and I will say, back in March, April, there was a lot more talk of that. Now you're hearing more people talking about, okay, when should I come back? Um, so it seems like most people are starting to plan when they are going to come back. Offices are now saying probably by, you know, April, May, June, they're going to open back up. Um, so I think in the first quarter of next year, you'll really start seeing a surge in leases being signed and people moving back into the city. Um, 
But you have some people that are saying, hey, we, you know, we rented a house out in the suburbs and we really enjoy being in the suburbs now. We never thought we'd like the suburb, suburban life, but we do actually like it. We're now going to stay out in the suburbs. So we're, we're seeing yeah, that. You all have those people, 100%. Correct. So we're seeing that somewhat, and I think that will have a small impact. But I do think most people are going to be moving back to the city. It seems like, for the most part, people are on kind of just trying to figure out what the timing is and when they need to be back for work and when they need to be in, back in the city. I think offices reopening is going to be the biggest question because when offices reopen, I think that's going to bring everyone back. Um, and I look, you've heard from Facebook, you've heard from Google, you've heard from some of these big tech companies that they're okay with people working remotely indefinitely. Um, so that will have somewhat of an impact. Obviously, how huge of an impact will it be? What percentage of market share do they do they take we'll up? We'll have to wait and see. We'll exactly. have to wait and see. Exactly. We'll have to wait and see because when you're in the storm, you're seeing storm and you don't see past it. Let me ask you this before we – I have two more things to talk to you about and uh, time is running out. And the, and the next day, what's next? What's coming up next? When is this thing over? How do you see 2021, which is in actually a couple of days away? What do you see? Where the market is going? Where are the opportunities? What do you yeah, think? That's a great question. So so in terms of what ne what's next, uh, next, obviously, if I had a crystal ball, I, I would be able to to be unbelievably successful and um, honestly would be able to own everything in the city if I had a crystal ball. But um, I would say my sense at this point from everything I'm hearing is I think that most offices will be reopened by June. Um, obviously, as the vaccine is, is slowly being distributed in, in New York, um, at least, um, I think- And all over the world, by the way. Correct. No, 100%. But I, I think New York, Israel seems to have, I would say, much more of a timeline. New York, I haven't seen a clear timeline for when people will be vaccinated. Um, Israel, I know they're saying that, that I think Netanyahu had said that by Passover, he's hoping that everyone will be vaccinated. It's already happening. It's already happening in Europe is also. So I'm a, why? Because people are traveling. It's a, you know, it's a global world. People want to get back. The planes are, you know, getting back into actions slowly, of course, but that's why, that's why I think that is going to happen. People are going to get vaccinated. It's going to happen. But I want to focus for a second. Um, 2021, where are the opportunities? What do you think? So it's a good question. Look, I do think in 2021, you're going to have quite a few um, quite a few foreclosures. I think, truthfully, there's going to be... Which asset, which asset class, you think? So I think multifamily and office. There's going to be a tremendous amount of foreclosures. And then also some of these retail condos. I will say a lot of the... And, and hotels, don't forget. And hotels. Hotels also. And, and actually, there was an interesting Wall Street Journal article last week about this, that people are converting some of these hotels to micro units, um, which, which was a trend, I would say, prior to COVID. Um, and I think might become even more of a trend post-COVID. Um, but interestingly, look, you look at Airbnb, right? Look at their IPO, right? They hit records for their IPO. And the truth is they're also in terms of revenues hitting records because of people who are renting these long-term homes where they say, we want to get out of the city. We're going to rent a home. Airbnb is doing great, right? So there is obviously a lot of pent-up demand for vacations. I do think there are a lot of hotels that are struggling right now. But the good thing about hotels is since it's short-term, I do believe that they will get a huge surge of revenue after everything reopens up. So they pretty quickly should get that revenue that could help them hopefully pay their bills and work out their loans and all that type of stuff. Um, but I think there's already, you're already seeing on the hotel side, some foreclosures and whatnot. Um, on the multifamily and office side, um, I think those are going to be slower to reabsorb. So first of all, like I said, in Manhattan, for example, so we have a 10% vacancy rate, which actually from what I understand, 10% is actually relatively good compared to certain other portfolios. A lot of our portfolio in Manhattan, at least, is Class B, so it's kind of renovated walk-up buildings and things like that. Um, in the really high-end rental buildings, from what I understand, those are over 20% vacancy, um, and their rents are down nearly 30% in many of those buildings. Um, so we're down 20% and, and only 10% vacancy. Um, in terms of reabsorbing that, in terms of getting those rents back up to what they were prior, which is what these deals were underwritten at, right? And what, what give them their debt service coverage that they need to ultimately pay their loans. Um, I think that's going to take quite a while. I, I don't think that's happening in early 2021, right? I think even though people are going to be back in the office, I don't think that reabsorption happens right away. I definitely don't think rents go back right away. Um, it was actually, it's, interesting what happened with rents decreasing since there was a limited supply of people landlords were very aggressively reducing rents right so like what we were finding was since there was a limited supply of people looking 
We used to, I'd say maybe once every two weeks to a month, adjust our pricing um, on units that were vacant. We over COVID have been having calls with the brokers and the owners of the buildings that we manage third party and at least once, if not twice a week, adjusting pricing, right? But so I think because of that race to the bottom to just pick up tenants, um, our rents have been really reduced. So when people start coming back um, and because there is so much supply on the market, I think it's going to take a while, even though our vacancy might be filled. And I do believe vacancy will go down drastically, probably in the first or second quarter of 2021. Um, I think rents will still be substantially reduced from what they were pre-COVID. And I think that's going to take years to come back. So the question is, if your rents are that far below where they were prior, what does that do ultimately to your debt service coverage? What does that do to your, your mortgage payments? And can you still afford to operate that building? And I think in many cases, the answer is going to be no. Um, and so once COVID's over, the banks are no longer going to say, okay, we're going to give you forbearance. We're going to wait and see what happens. Right. At that point, they're going to foreclose. And that is what it is. Um, so I think you're going to see foreclosures on the rental on the the um, on the residential rental side, on the commercial side, the office building side. I think two three it's going to be years because I think you are going to have people cutting footprints. Um, so I think it's going to be years till that's reabsorbed. Probably two to three years, my guess would be, till that really starts getting reabsorbed. Hopefully there is not too much new office product that people are trying to put on the market. Um, but I think it's going to be years before that gets reabsorbed. So that one I think will be hit harder. And I think through that whole period of time, if people can't pay their mortgages. Banks are going to start foreclosing. Unbelievable. So, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting production prediction. What I want to talk about right now is uh, when we have four minutes, three and a half minutes to make it accurate. Yeah, I want to talk about a little bit of a mutual uh, something that we share mutually. Prop tech. Yep. Prop tech. Let's talk about that a little bit because I know you're involved just as I am. And uh, what do you think? Well, what is coming, especially in this environment? So, that's, so, so a couple of things that I would say. One is I do think that there's a huge need for, for kind of a revolution in prop tech throughout all of our buildings. So I think the prop tech industry is going to remain strong. I think it's going to continue to grow, and I think there's going to be tremendous numbers of opportunities. Um, at the same time, though, I think the tech industry in general may suffer in the, in the coming years. Um, so I think in general, in terms of money being thrown towards the tech industry, um, personally, I think that valuations have been overly inflated and truthfully, because interest rates are so low, I think a lot of people have been aggressively investing in tech. I think that is going to pull back. So I think what's going to happen is the number of companies will be reduced, but I think the quality of the companies will increase that are in that space. Obviously, it's a good thing. Yeah, no, I, I think it is a good thing, but I think truthfully, it will scare people away to some extent, because I think there will be a lot of people who have invested over the years that will lose their money and won't keep investing in there, but that's okay. I think you'll get more professional investors in that space um, and it will really become a more professionalized investment space. Um, but um, I think there's tremendous technology that's going to come out. I think, look, I know you're working with, with some companies in Israel. I know um, my tower is one of them that I've been super impressed with, right? So Penny, the founder over at my tower, every time I speak to him, he's working on new innovation, new products with COVID, right? Exactly. Integrated system, the cameras so that they could tell the temperature, people entering the buildings and this and that. Um, there's some really in innovative entrepreneurs out there. And I think that a lot of these guys are going to really just blow up over the next few years, especially to what I said before, the fact that I think the field is going to become more narrow. There's going to be less people in that space. And I think the people that succeed are really going to succeed big time. Um, so I think there's, there's tremendous opportunity. I think the industry needs to be revolutionized. I think we are just way, 100%. way too far in the past. And I think it will, to what I said before also, I think it will help us start scaling, right? We'll become a business that that is not as labor intensive. Obviously, it's still going to be a people business, but it won't be quite as labor intensive and quite as, as human driven as it's been in the past. All right, Michael, listen. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Guys, if you want to reach out to Michael and uh, and actually hire him as a management company, they have a management company. Look at all these you know, links that we put up below, above, wherever you're looking at and uh, seeing this show. Uh, please do so. And uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us and all that stuff. Michael, Stick around. We'll schmooze a little bit, but I have to take you off as we call it to the waiting room. I'm just going to say goodbye to everybody. So give me just one second. So thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Perfect. Thanks, Yishai. I appreciate it. No problem. So guys, I just want to say, have a beautiful week. Have a beautiful, have a beautiful, uh, not only week, have a productive week. 
have everything going for you and you know keep on keep on teaching yourself keep on educating yourself about commercial real estate in order to make sure that you guys are on target and if you're a pro make sure that you listen to the show in order to meet all these people that we interview in order to contact those people to see if you can find maybe a connection you can do business with them and maybe something amazing will happen maybe something amazing will happen and now as per the beginner please the beginners please check out the course Please educate yourself. Make sure that you do whatever you need to do in order to get yourself notified and, and uh, how do you say, get into commercial real estate in the proper way and get yourself educated. Become an expert. That's the most important, being, uh, most important thing. Become an expert. And with that, I'm going to tell you guys. So it's going to be, I'm going to rip out this beautiful audio from this show and it's going to be on the podcast, on the CRE Shark Guide uh, podcast. So hopefully, guys, I'm going to see you on Thursday. Take care of yourself. And have a beautiful week. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.